Every sports story that matters, join for just $1 a month. Don't miss exclusive in-depth coverage of this unprecedented sports season from Notre Dame's opener to its potential run to the college football playoff. Subscribe now and save. Sign up now to see for yourself the creativity, reporting, and storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. And if you go to theathletic.com, the shamrock, you can receive an all-access subscription for just $1 a month. Sports are back, and you don't want to miss breaking stories on your favorite team, so go to theathletic.com slash theshamrock and receive an all-access subscription for just $1 a month. We hope to see you there. Welcome to the latest episode of The Shamrock. I'm Pete Sampson, joined by Matt Fortuna. Uh, we're talking a little South Florida past and present today. Um, also, I think we have a, a few shots to get in at the Big Ten for their very courageous decision to return to football after everyone else did. Uh, and then maybe unpacking a few more details from Notre Dame's opener against Duke as uh, I've gone back and sort of pick that apart a little bit more. Some some things I think stood out to me more as concerns and some things uh, definitely less. But Matt, uh, I think before we get into this year's South Florida game, we had sort of a, a lighthearted look, I would say, uh, at look back at Notre Dame South Florida 2011. Um, it was not the full exhaustive oral history that we're used to doing at The Athletic, more of a, a quick in, quick out. But uh, you, you were... You sort of led the charge on that. What uh, what did you enjoy most about uh, looking back at that uh, lightning storm of a game? Uh, just seeing the different reactions from different people and seeing that game in the context of Notre Dame football in 2020, right? I mean, you look at a game like that, you look at a game like the Michigan game the week after, you look at really that entire first two years of the Kelly era, and it was a lot of doom and gloom. It was a lot of, you know, ever since Holtz left, we're never going to be good again. Like, they, they, they're irrelevant. Rick Riley said it. Like, they're on rank going into 2012. Like, there was definitely that, you know, two-ton piano hanging above their head at every single time. Like, just what – anytime something could go wrong, it went wrong. And, and no game, I think, embodies that better than the 2011 opener against South Florida. Uh, fast forward to present day – and Notre Dame football under Brian Kelly still is in a very healthy spot. And without that 2012 season where everything went the opposite way, Notre Dame's way, and they go to the national championship game, um, I, I think you look at that USF game in a much different context. I mean, it was doom and gloom at the time, but everyone I talked to uh, had, had played the following year or coached the following year at Notre Dame, and it was very much – a. We were still in the infancy stages of program building. We had so much to learn. Uh, we weren't very coachable. The coaches didn't really get us, and they didn't really care. They were setting a tone. Uh, but we had so many mistakes to get out of our system. And though you hate to learn the hard way, we learned the hard way. And you, you take that lesson and, and push it forward to the next year, and you have one of the more memorable teams and really of our lifetimes in Notre Dame. So um, I, I think – if Brian Kelly either left for the NFL after year three or if, if uh, uh, Purdue ended up beating uh, Notre Dame in week two, coming back from Dublin in 2012, 
and that season goes off the rails, the 2011 South Florida game takes on a completely different context, uh, especially since South Florida ended up not being all that great either. They only won five games that year, and Skip Holtz got fired the following season. Yeah, talking to Chuck Martin about it, it was interesting uh, to sort of hear him present that game one. It was like, hey, thanks for calling me about this, uh, but then also about how you sort of need some scar tissue built up to – get to the other side of it. Um, and South Florida presented Notre Dame with a lot of scar tissue. And then I enjoyed sort of, this didn't really get into the story because it's more of a, a separate topic. And I asked him, you know, you look back at that team, were you, were you any more unlucky in 2011 than you were lucky in 2012? And he's like, you know, not really. It's just one team knew how to win close games and had some real confidence about it and another team didn't and in a lot of ways they were the same team it was just one year removed and he sort of he talked about you know hey every team after they win a close game they tell you oh we always thought we were going to win like there's never any doubt because he's like well what else are you going to say um that we didn't like I I was pretty sure we're going to lose I can't believe we pulled it out um but he said the 2011 team is like sideline wasn't so good um, it was. It wasn't a group that believed uh, this was going to turn around and they were going to figure out a way to to win, which is just amazing. That you know, minus five turnovers, uh, they outgained South Florida two to one, and it's like the turnovers themselves. Like minus five doesn't sum up how bad they were. You have a fumble return from your own goal line for a touchdown. So, you know, similar to Jafar Armstrong against Virginia Tech last year. And then you throw two picks in the end zone uh, and lose two fumble returns, which are just basically a 50-yard net loss turnover. So all that happening and to still lose only by three points, it's it's amazing that it was that close, um, but it's more amazing that all – like I, th- I think the way that Martin described it was, you know, sometimes you look back at a game and think, yeah, if this one thing was different, the outcome would have different. That was like – yeah, we needed 27 things to go wrong to lose that game. And, and sure enough, all 27 things happened. I was, I was on the phone with Dan Fox as I'm interviewing him, and we're, we're chatting, and he asked me a couple questions to, to spark his memories about the game, and I opened the box score because he was like, I think the defense was – I think we were all right. Like, that was my first career start. I remember pretty good, but, like, I feel like we played all right, right? And I'm looking, and I'm like, yeah, you guys actually outgave them – literally doubled their yardage, yeah. like 508 to 254, like – I remember it was bad. I didn't remember it was that bad. And then, as you said, five turnovers, each one more inexplicable than the, the last. Theo Riddick had another fumble on a punt uh, return that he recovered himself, so it wasn't a turnover. I forgot David Ruffer missed a 30-yard field goal in a game they ended up losing by three points. Right. Like That's usually the most significant play in a game <laughs> that's decided by three points. Barely made the and top be- ten. No, exactly, exactly. Um, red zone, Notre Dame was two for six. USF was three for three. And it was, I think I've said this on this podcast before, that was the first game I was covering uh, for ESPN. First time I'd ever been at Notre Dame Stadium. And it was, what? What, <laughs> uh, what, what did I get myself into? Uh, I mean, I remember at halftime, uh, after the long, drawn-out quarterback battle between Dan Chris and Tommy Reese, um, I've got fans of my mentions, you know, indoctrinated me, right, into the, mm-hmm. the Notre Dame Twitter sphere by saying, you know, yay, Chris. We need a new quarterback, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, these guys are freaking crazy. It's it's one half of one game. And sure enough, you hear the uh, press box announcer say, Tommy Reese in to start the second half. And it's, what? Uh, which 
probably surprised me more than others because that was my first time there and everyone I talked to was like, no, that's Brian Kelly for you. And it was a pretty close competition and Tommy had uh, gone 4-0 and as a starter the year before. So, um, and he threw for 296 yards in one half. Um, talking from the South Florida side of things, I spoke with, with Mark Snyder, who was the, the defense coordinator for USF at the time and who, who knows Brian Kelly very well and, and could not say enough good things about Brian Kelly. He just thought, you know, that guy is one of the – He's like, I, I put him in the same category as Steve Spurrier as far as offensive coaches I've ever gone up against. Like, there's just so much preparation uh, that goes into to playing those coaches. And he's like, we just didn't want Michael Floyd to beat us. And it didn't matter because no one knew about Tyler Eifert at that time. And Eifert yeah. ended up becoming Tommy Reese's best friend. And he's like, I just thought we were screwed, especially that first drive. They march all the way down to the one in seven plays. And it's, you know, what do – what did we get ourselves into here and the flukiest plays of all plays, which uh, you brought it up with, with Chuck and, and Kaplan Lewis Moore. I, I forgot that that package featured Carlo Calabrese and Ethan Johnson of all people. Oh man. Uh, and Steve Filer. I mean, I, I completely forgot that. I think uh, about it on a daily basis, man. <laughs> as I'm sure some of them do as well. Uh, also funny reading Notre Dame safeties coach Chuck Martin. Like you forget he was a defensive position coach that yes. year before turning into the offense coordinator, which um, Andrew Hendricks, uh, when I asked him some of the lessons they took from 2011 and used to their benefit in 2012, he really stressed just kind of the overall culture and vibe that, that Chuck Martin brought to the offensive side, um, which is not surprising to hear him shout out Chuck. He obviously followed him to Miami, mm-hmm. Ohio for his fifth year and, and had a good year there in the MAC, but um, he, he thought that was a very – uh, big pivot point for that program. And, and we've talked about Chuck a lot in the context of he's, he's kind of a less polished Brian Kelly in some ways. Oh, like yeah. More likable Brian Kelly, uh, a little more off the cuff. More of an everyman um, Brian Kelly, I yes. think. Yes. That's how and, I would describe him. When he curses at the players, I think they, they kind of appreciate it. Whereas with other guys, it's funny. Players, it's, you know, when Chuck does it, it's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, we've been at some of those practices at Day back in the day where he's saying, why are you throwing an effing touchdown Jesus? Throw it to the end zone. I mean, it's 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 funny. Um, and, and people, he gets his message across without being demeaning, whereas I, I think that's uh, it's kind of a lost art <laughs> among a lot of coaches yes. who are at and have been at Notre Dame. Um, but I think that was a very big part of it. And to hear Chuck speak about it in the luck phrase, in the phrase of, of course, we, we're not going to say we don't think we're going to win, but there wasn't a lot of confidence yeah, I mean, in retrospect, that's absolutely true. I, I was surprised to hear him say it because you're always surprised to hear people say it. Just as, as I was surprised to hear Andrew Hendricks say, and I put this in a story, quote, you hate to say this, but it's one of those games that starts so poorly and you never want to say they want to be there more than you do. But them beating Notre Dame is way better than us beating USF, as bad as that sounds, end quote. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the whole every game's their Super Bowl against Notre Dame, that's doubly true when you're playing a, a group of five team and a, a head coach who used to work there. Um, which is not meaning to be a transition into this week's game with Charlie Weiss Jr. Uh, coming to town after Skip Holtz did. But, uh, yeah, there there were a lot of elements, a lot of angles to that game. One more I want to mention the podcast uh, before we quit harping on what happened nine years ago. Uh, Mark Snyder said his internal memory was they're pulling up to campus and the cops pulled them over, their buses over. And they're wondering what's going on. And it was just to let Notre Dame's buses skip them. And there was a helicopter that was above USF's traveling contingent from Michigan City the whole time that they assumed was, was to be on guard for them. Mm-hmm. When really they were following the Notre Dame buses and they just completely cut USF off. And 
I know it's a little thing. I know we like, especially the media, like to make a mountain out of the molehill when it comes to some of these disrespect cards. USF absolutely use that as a chip on their shoulder. I mean, uh, the buses pull up to the stadium finally, and usually Skip Holtz gets off first, and everyone follows, and Skip Holtz didn't move, and there was a very tense mood on that bus, as Mark Snyder described to me, and Skip just gets up out of nowhere and starts screaming, and the whole team goes crazy, and it was, you know what? If nothing else, we're going to be ready to play today, and they obviously were. Yeah, no question. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting transition. Obviously, you got the, the Notre Dame past Holtz Weiss connections, but also just how much more of a proven, consistent commodity uh, Notre Dame is now. I mean, they've won 19 straight at home. I believe they've won 25 straight against unranked teams. Like, Notre Dame doesn't even get in the same zip code as these kinds of games anymore, uh, which is a real testament to sort of the, the culture that Brian Kelly has built. And it's there's no – for so long, I mean, really for – almost 20 years you just didn't know what you were going to get from Notre Dame on a week-to-week basis and now you do and I mean one it's amazing how long it took to get to that point but two it's a hell of a compliment to to Brian Kelly and the culture of the program that that they got here it is and it wasn't always smooth sailing Um, for sure I mean 2018 is a great example right they went to the I mean I don't want to compare 2018 to 2012 because that's the easiest thing to do when you look at the end result but um, when you look at the start of that season, barely beating Ball State, uh, barely beating Vanderbilt. Uh, obviously, a quarterback switch changed everything for them, and uh, it's continued to this day because Ian Book's still starting. He's in his mm-hmm. third year starting. He's a fifth-year senior. Um, but, yeah, even as recently as two years ago, this was a program that um, didn't always get out of its own way. Um, and I think a lot of people uh, – I don't want to say they question the coaching staff for switching to Ian Book in week four when you were 3-0 in 2018. Uh, but that doesn't make it any less bold of a move, right? Like to, to, to stomp out the problem before it actually hurts you. Uh, and in some ways, that harkened back to the Brian Kelly of 2011 who yanked Dan Chris at halftime, and, uh, which, you know, in retrospect was definitely the right call. I mean, the offense was better under Tommy Reese, and um, it moved faster with him throughout the course of the season. But uh, it was only two years ago where they're still in this quarterback conundrum. And they may be in it after this year when Ian Book goes. And sure. we don't know who the next starter is going to be. Um, but it's just, it, it, it's just fascinating to see them go from a program that uh, was too fickle and was always switching their quarterbacks to a program that had the, the guts, the fortitude, if you will, to make that kind of switch while undefeated. And to see that go from a team that was going to get by on the skin of their teeth every single week to a team that absolutely took off and outside of the Pittsburgh game never really was in jeopardy of, of losing um, during the 2018 regular season right. with the book under center. Yeah, I mean, certainly they had their moments last year. It's a Virginia Tech game was tight, um, you know, and every team does. But they <laughs> it, it feels like a team that's almost upset-proof right now, which I – you know, people are. I should knock on the wood on my table here, but um, it just Notre Dame has is a very uh, confident group, and the that sideline in 2011. I don't want to say would never return today, but it would pretty much never return today. Where you looked around and you're like, "Are we going to win this or not?" Um, I think Notre Dame is just a supremely confident group, and that should continue this weekend against South Florida. It's you know the Charlie West Jr. 
uh, angle is is interesting. And you know, by completely just dumb luck, I went down and spent some time with him in Tampa in the winter when you could go places and visit with people. But um, you know, a bright, engaging young offensive coordinator against another bright, engaging young offensive coordinator. That's a great sidebar, but I guess in terms of the game itself, this is this is kind of one of those weekends where Notre Dame should mow somebody down because South Florida is in rebuild mode, and Notre Dame maybe might not be a perfect football program right now, but this is the kind of game that they should run away with. Hi, I'm Andy Staples with The Athletic. No matter what fitness fads you follow, one thing is true across every one of them. You have to get hydrated and stay hydrated The best way to do that is liquid IV. It is the most efficient way to get and stay hydrated because each serving helps you get as much hydration as two to three bottles of water. Why is that? It's the optimal ratio of glucose, sodium, and potassium delivered into your bloodstream. I live in a place where it is scorching hot, very humid, lose a lot of water when I go out running. I drink a liquid IV beforehand. I drink a liquid IV when I get back. It feels great. Partial to the acai berry before, lemon-lime on the way back. I'm not sure exactly why it works out that way, but those are my favorites. Also, if you celebrate it a little bit, it doesn't have to be a workout thing. Maybe I had a neighbor who was testing out smoked old fashions, and maybe I had a few. Maybe I had one too many. When I got home, I drank a liquid IV right before bed. I felt fantastic in the morning. So how do you get yourself some liquid IV. You go to liquidiv.com and you use the code ATHLETIC at checkout and you get 25% off anything you order. That is 25% off anything you order when you use the promo code ATHLETIC at liquidiv.com. So get better hydration today at liquidiv.com, promo code ATHLETIC. Yeah, South Florida's on its third different head coach since that 2011 game. Well, Notre Dame's still on the same one. Uh, Willie Taggart, uh, Charlie Strong, and now Jeff Scott from Clemson. They're always one of the more talented group of five teams. Uh, I think that it's always an attractive job. I mean, for a first-time head coach, if you're Jeff Scott, I mean, you've had opportunities in the past and didn't want to leave Davos Winnie's side. This is one you jump at to become a head coach, especially with your family's roots in Florida. I mean, you can get a lot of good players down there, and I mean, they show. I mean, Notre Dame upset aside nine years ago. I mean, they've had some peaks and valleys here. I mean, they they under Willie, Willie Taggart parlayed that into the Florida State job. Like they're they always have the potential to be good. I just don't know. I mean, we've only seen one game of them. It was against the Citadel. There's not a whole lot really to take from that. Uh, they thought they had talent. That staff thought they had talent on that roster when they got there. But new coaching staff, no spring ball. What's that really mean? I, I don't think any of us know, and I think that's something that will slowly show itself throughout the course of the season for South Florida. I mean, I, it sounds like they're going to be super tempo and RPO. It sounds like that's what Charlie Jr. likes to run. Yes. Um, I think scheme-wise they should be pretty sound, but you, you just don't know about that personnel. Glenn Spencer, the defense coordinator, is a longtime coordinator, runs a really good, great scheme, similar to, to what Baylor did last year um, in, in winning a lot of close games and using three safety stuff and, 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 and you know, grinding their way to victory, so to speak. I, I just don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll plead guilty here. I, as far as the, the personnel on that roster, um, I, I don't have a good feel for it. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a rebuild. And, you know, what did you learn from their week one performance, a, a 27-6 win over the Citadel, which runs triple option? Probably not a ton. I mean, that's their passing game last week. They played, you know, 
their quarterbacks combined were 18 to 25 for 102 yards. So it's not it's not like they're chucking the ball all over the place. You know, they ran for 302 yards. That's something. Um, but you know, it was a it was a low possession opening week game, a low play count for a team that probably wants to run. You know, sort of into the 80 plays per game. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll be curious to see how this shakes out with with Notre Dame's defense. You know, certainly I'm going to give a a huge edge to Clark Lee over Charlie Weiss Jr. in terms of coordinating chops right now. But um, you know, Notre Dame rotated a ton on defense. They played 11 defensive linemen in the first eight plays. Um, they played seven. I'm sorry, yeah, seven different linebackers. If you include the rover in there too. So can they rotate as much? But then at corner, they only played two true corners last week uh, in Nick McLeod and Tariq Bracey. You know how does how does that fit together? Do you, do you have to rotate more against uh, you know a team that maybe is going to try to run your corners ragged with maybe they'll t- try to take some deep shots that they didn't last week? I don't know. And then you sort of have the Kyle Hamilton situation. My understanding earlier in the week is that he's not expected to play. Uh, he was incredible against Duke and will be so against basically everybody. So can you get away with that against South Florida? For sure. But, you know, Notre Dame's secondary depth is going to get tested in a way, uh, if not this weekend, then the week after against Wake Forest, and if not then, then later in the season in some pretty unique ways. So I'm, I'm sort of curious to see how Clark Lee manages personnel usage against South Florida more than I'm curious whether they're going to have success or not, because I think that we all know that South Florida is going to have a hard time moving the ball against uh, that defense. I just looked this up when you said it because it got me thinking. Fun fact, Charlie Weiss Jr. and Clark Lee have been coordinators for the exact same period of time. Both got their start in 2018. That's true. and Surprising, right? Yeah. And Clark's so good that you think he's done this forever, but he hasn't. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I sort of... When I was down in Tampa talking to Charlie Jr., we sort of talked through the the whole, like, hey, you're young element of it. And it's it's similar, not the same, but it's similar to with Reese. Right. It's like if you've been in football since you were in middle school, then mm-hmm. the experience aspect of it, if you're doing it correctly, is, is different. I, th- I think it's less relevant there than it would be. You know, Clark Lee didn't. He played football, but, you know, he played baseball and he transferred schools and, you know, he just he just wasn't immersed in the game the way that Reese and Weiss were because their dads were coaches in varying levels. And Lee's father is, a, I think, an orthopedic surgeon um, or a physician of some, some <laughs> renown. No big deal. <laughs> yeah, some renown. Does, you know, does something important, I think. Um, yeah, it's just – but they are. It's it's – you know, I guess you could look at it from this game and say you have three up and coming uh, coordinators. You know, I think I don't think of Lee as young and up and coming anymore right. because he's more like my age. But um, well, I mean, he's interviewed for head coaching jobs. Yeah, he's certainly a, a guy on the rise in the industry more than maybe a, a young up and comer. Maybe that's the best way to describe it. I would agree. I would agree. Um, I think you know the other thing I'm sort of curious about this weekend in particular is with Ian Book. You know, third year starting quarterback. Um, not great against Duke, not terrible against Duke, sort of somewhere in the middle. Um, and the fact that the somewhere in the middle was, you know, he, he pushed the ball in the mid-range game pretty well against Duke, but was not nearly as efficient as I think he would like to be or Notre, or Notre Dame wants him to be in sort of the short stuff. Um, 
you know, I, I think that he referred to the th- some of the throws he missed as layups. And, you know, a third-year starting quarter should, quarterback should never miss a layup, you know, whether it's the screen game or just short stuff. You know, that, that's where I think Notre Dame could have absolutely destroyed Duke last weekend if, you know, Book was a little bit sharper in that, whether that's the interception, um, you know, where he overthrew Tommy Tremble or missing, missing Kyron Williams on a different screen pass or missing Tremble on a screen pass. You know, there's certainly, you know, some drops involved in that too. But for a third-year starting quarterback, can he sort of take that accuracy and turn the dial a couple notches um, to pick apart South Florida's defense? Because if, if Book is sort of like the Wake Forest Stanford Book from 2018, then I think Notre Dame is incredibly difficult to beat. Um, and that would make them much, much more likely to be undefeated when they face Clemson in November. Yeah, I don't. It's week one, so like we're going to overreact. That's just the way it is, and we're going to, um, much like uh, I think every program around the country, we're going to blame every bad thing that happened on COVID, and every good thing that happens because they're great. Uh, I wasn't as. I mean, with the benefit of time, I'm not nearly as pessimistic or as doom and gloom looking back at the Duke game as I was in real time and as I think everyone was in real time. Um, it was the first game. Uh, the receivers, as you said, I think seven catches for 74 yards. It's just That's just not going to get it done. I mean, you'll beat Duke that way, but that's not a way to live over the course of a season. Um, I, I, I come out of that Duke game, final score notwithstanding, a um, lot more confident <clears throat> Excuse me, in Notre Dame than I was while watching it um, because you just have that, that, that tenseness, if you will, um, mm-hmm. of watching what you think should be a route not become a route uh, really until the fourth quarter. Um, I don't know. I just – if Brady Lindsay comes back, I mean, they, Kelly said he'll play Saturday. Is that actually true? I don't know. Do you – Yeah, I don't, I don't have a whole lot of insight this second. We talked to Brian Kelly here in a minute. But – you know, it's like if his hamstring flares up again, then he won't play. Um, and that could happen Thursday in practice or, um, you know, in warm-ups of the game. He dressed for last right. weekend. So, it's – I mean, my understanding is that if they needed him, they would have played him, um, and they didn't feel like they needed him. You know, it's the same way with Hamilton's ankle. If they were playing Clemson this weekend, he would play. But they're not. They're playing South Florida. So, it um, – I don't know. It that would make a big difference to the offense for me because I, I think that you know any criticism of VM Book has to be you, you have to have some sort of I don't know perspective about where Notre Dame is at the receiver position because you know it's maybe this is a bad parallel but like how good would Trevor Lawrence be if he didn't have T Higgins and Justin Ross and Amari Rogers and like the eight other four and five star receivers that they have on their roster. Probably not as good, right? I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. Last week we had Ryan Harrison saying Tom Brady's won a bunch of MVPs with a bunch of nobody. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> we're kind of playing both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> we have to go with the that Tom Brady is a little bit more of an exception than a rule. Um, I think but, Trevor Lawrence might be more of an exception. Yeah, than a rule he's as well. also in that group. But it's just you know, Book is thrown to a Northwestern graduate transfer who pops his hamstring a little bit. Um, you know, Javon McKinley who was a, played the most snaps of any offensive skill player against Duke, but was not officially targeted in the game. Um, you know, that's – you shouldn't have a receiver that you can't target 
playing that load of snaps. Um, you know, seven catches for the receivers total is incredibly low. Um, you know, and Joe Wilkins, somebody who probably didn't expect to whole, play a whole lot, led the group. So it's it's not you know it's not an embarrassment of richer riches at that position so you get Lindsay back hopefully you know can you get jordan johnson five ten plays you know where he can factor in um you know can that be a situation where similar to like a, a to it in nicks from 2011 where i think they didn't play at michigan the week after south florida and right. then we're and then Lynch was throwing around Michigan State a week later, and then they both dominated the Pittsburgh game a few weeks after that. Um, you know, maybe there's something for Jordan Johnson there, and then Kevin Austin. I think you're hoping to get him back in early October, mid October. Uh, the receiver position, there's so much opportunity for growth there, and if a defense has to respect you throwing the ball more than 15 or 20 yards down the field because you have receivers who can get 15 to 20 yards down the field and get open. You know, maybe that that opens things up for Ian Book too. I don't know, but that's I think sort of how Notre Dame's defense handles tempo this weekend, and then can the book receiver group both ends—the guy throwing it and the guy catching it—how um, they can push the ball forward a little bit. Those are those are the two things I'm most interested about on Saturday. You had an interesting stat in your mailbag that ran yesterday, asking about freshman receivers, and you broke it down by year, and it's. It's a very dark place. Uh, if you want to go on The Athletic, check out Pete Sampson's mailbag. Uh, Stephen O. had submitted the question about increased playing time for freshman receivers. And I'll, I'll just read the stats to you here, uh, provided by Pete's story. Leading receiver among true freshmen by season under Brian Kelly at Notre Dame. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, 2011, 2014, and 2019 were all none. 2010, TJ Jones, 23 catches, 306 yards, three touchdowns. Very nice. Um, hang on to that because that's going to be pretty much the gold standard. Uh, 2012, Chris Brown, two catches, 56 yards, a very memorable catch uh, at Oklahoma uh, that caught people off guard. 2013, Corey Robinson. Some people thought he was a first-round pick at that point. Uh, nine catches, 157 yards, one touchdown. Will Fuller also six catches, 160 yards, one touchdown. 2014 on 2015, EQ, Equinemia St. Brown, one catch, eight yards. 2016, Kevin Stefferson, 25 catches, 462 yards, five touchdowns. Chase Claypool, five catches, 81 yards. One of those guys built tremendously off that freshman performance. The other, not so much. 2017, Michael Young, four catches, 18 yards. 2018, Kevin Austin, five catches, 90 yards. I believe all Michael Young's catches in that bowl game against LSU. Uh, He had a touchdown in the bowl game. Uh, I don't know if that were, was all his catches for the season, but he caught a touchdown in the bowl game, which was kind of a cool thing because his um, – God, I don't know the relation. Joseph Adai was somehow a family relation to him, former LSU running back, which was kind of cool. But, um, yeah, it just – you know, I, I talked to somebody who coached at Notre Dame recently, and I asked him, like, freshman receivers, like, what's the deal? Is this a hard offense to learn or what? Uh, and he's like, yeah, it's – there's a, there's a lot to it, um, and also he mentioned, you know, these freshmen come in. You can have good training camp practices, good moments, uh, and then school starts, and you're you're looking around and saying like, where did uh, you know where did Michael Young go? Um, what happened to him? You know, he where's the freshman that was great in August, or you know, Kevin Austin looked outstanding in 2018 in August, like. Where did he go? What happened to that guy? Um, 
it just they they've had a hard time finding freshmen who can sort of hold up their end of the bargain on all fronts at Notre Dame. And if something's got to give, as you know, football is what gives, not academics. Uh, and that load gets harder and harder uh, as the semester goes on. So it's it's finding a balance there. It's tricky, um, you know, which is in some ways maybe why the, the story should be more about how impressive it was that Chris Tyree and Michael Mayer got to a point where the coaching staff really relied on them in a, in a full-time capacity. Was that Matt LaFleur? Was he busy taking was, time from Coach Aaron Rodgers? It was not Matt LaFleur. Okay. I wasn't sure. Uh, yeah, and um, I asked Joe Wilkins this on Tuesday during play interviews. Just like, is this a hard offense to learn or not? And he's like, yeah, there's a lot There's a lot to it. You have to, you have to convert routes, read coverages. Um, I just think if, if I'm Notre Dame – and Jordan Johnson is in good standing academically. I'm giving him five to ten plays. Maybe three of them are go routes. Maybe three of them are run plays. And then you ask him to like sort of diagnose the coverage and convert a route maybe once or twice. But there's, I think you got to figure out how to do that because he's, as long as you know he's with you academically, he's he's just too talented not to give something to during the course of the year. Maybe this weekend. Maybe Wake Forest. Maybe Louisville. Maybe it's in November. I don't know. But I, I just would like to see him feature at some point. Under Kelly, the freshman class is more likely to finish with a combined zero catches than have a single freshman make 20 receptions. I wonder if that preseason comment, that August comment, that has to go out the window this year, though, right? I mean, since what they didn't really. That? Well, that you were just talking about it oh, with the four about- coach. I mean,. They didn't yeah. really have a camp, a traditional camp. They- yeah, and that's it's. Well, I don't think it goes out the window. I just think it, it applies differently because we, the media, never saw any of the camp. You know, we never saw the Kevin Stefferson, Michael Young, Kevin Austin freshman receiver. Like, huh, that guy's kind of interesting. So we don't. Maybe that didn't happen at all. I just, but I own in the limited highlights Notre Dame had put out on Twitter. Jordan Johnson scoring on a seventy-yard touchdown pass was one of them. So. He was somebody that they were working through and seeing, like, can this guy give us something? Um, you know, when I see – I think there was a Jordan Johnson clip, if I'm not mistaken, where he matched up with Nick McLeod in one-on-ones. And they, they don't put freshmen against seniors unless that freshman is showing you something. Uh, and Nick McLeod clearly is a, was an entrenched starter. So they, they definitely pushed the envelope with Jordan Johnson to see, like, can this guy give us something or not? Um, and he did enough that they put out some highlights of the guy. So it's, you know, it's sort of a yes and no to the the August different differences this year, where there's a camp versus no camp with classes versus being in session or not. Yeah, I just wonder if they only know one way. If it's there's not a culture shock to them as far as all right, we didn't have to worry about classes, other students, and yeah. now we do. It's been pretty consistent uh, due to the times we're in right now. So I, I just wonder how that would affect them. Um, by the way, Kyrie Williams, first at 90-90 ND player, 90 yards receiving and rushing in a game since at least 1996 this past week, according to Notre Dame's game notes. I feel like uh, now now I feel like I, I want to have written this down, and I'm going to search it on Twitter as we go. But Tim Beret, I feel like I saw Alan Pinkett's name somewhere. Yeah, Was that you or Tim No, Beret? Tim Beret, former uh, Notre Dame graduate and just amazing guy. Um <laughs> Had been a, I don't know, how long how long was he at Clemson? Please talk Four. while I go back and search this out. <laughs> <laughs> he was there probably forty something. I, I I believe he was the longest tenured SID. Ah, okay, here we go. Retired. 
Kyron Williams, this is courtesy of Tim Bray. Kyron Williams is the first Notre Dame player with at least 90 yards rushing and 90 yards receiving in the same game since 1983 uh, against Air Force when Alan Pinkett had uh, 93 receiving and 197 yards rushing uh, in a 23-22 win by Notre Dame. I'm sorry, no, a loss by Notre Dame. Air Force won the game. Oh, jeez. Yeah, the game notes said at least 96. I, I could have sworn I saw something. Yeah, it would have been that because uh, I followed Tim. Um, yeah, he, he's a, a numbers maven guru. He, he's He knows everything. I mean, he's he's probably more excited for November, November 7th than, than anybody. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we're he's in the context of like, what are we going to write about for the Clemson game? There's got to be a Tim Beret story at some point, even though it's not the first time Notre Dame has played Clemson, but it is the first time Clemson has come here in forever. Well, we would see him in the Notre Dame press box during Clemson bye weeks. He would just drive from Death Valley to, to yeah. South Bend. Awesome, <laughs> awesome guy. It sure was nice seeing the teams back out on the gridiron over the weekend. Lucky for us, it was just week one. There is no better place to get in on all of the action than with DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports. To add to this week's excitement, DraftKings has millions of dollars in total prizes up for grabs. If you haven't tried DraftKings yet, head up to the App Store now because you don't want to miss this. Draft your lineup now and feel the sweat like never before. Every run, pass, and catch means more with DraftKings. It's simple. Just pick your lineup, stay under the salary cap, and see how your team stacks up against the competition. Nothing adds to the excitement of watching the game quite like having a shot at millions of dollars in prizes. DraftKings has paid out billions of dollars to winners since 2012, so they know a thing or two about cold, hard cash. Download the DraftKings app now and use the code RUN. For a limited time, new users can get a free shot at millions of dollars in prizes this week. Don't miss out on the week two action. Enter code RUN to get a free shot at millions of dollars in prizes with your first deposit. That's code RUN only at DraftKings. Make it rain. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. You know, I guess as we before we get into predictions for this weekend, um, the Big Ten. <laughs> I I posted this on Twitter. You replied to it. We're pretty certain that if the Big Ten had a little bit more organizational foresight and they postponed their season instead of canceling it, if they had just postponed to the weekend of September, was it twenty sixth, twenty eighth, when Notre Dame plays at Wake 26th, Forest? Sixth, yeah that we would have a full slate of Big Ten games in nine days. Instead, we have to wait until mid-October, which seems unbelievably stupid to me um, as you look at the way the Big... I mean, among all the stupid things the Big Ten has done, <laughs> that this that actually is almost at the, probably at the top of the list. It's... I just don't know how you take anything this conference says seriously ever again. I, I, I mean, I, I'm happy they're back. Don't get me wrong. Yes, please. But more like, football. I want what, more football, not less. Like, right before we start recording this podcast, two days before Carolina's going to host Charlotte, that game's canceled. Like, cancellations, like, we have, we're living in a world where that's normal now. And the Big Ten, with their schedule right now, is counting on nine games in nine weeks. Uh, and they're, if you look at, the nitty-gritty details as far as requirements to cancel a game, requirements to stop a practice, 
21 days before you can return to competition if you test positive. I, I know they have daily testing. I know the science has changed. That's great. They're putting themselves in such a hole here as far as how they're going to pull this off without a million moving parts and a million people angry about the imbalance of it all. I mean, we could already hear it now, right? Notre Dame, say, goes 11-1. and one. They beat Clemson once. They lose them. They lose them once. Ohio State, say, goes 7-0 and oh and had two cancellations. Notre Dame has a conference title under their belt. Ohio State does it. <laughs> Game on, committee. Man, that would be a hell of a scenario. Um, yeah. Well, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, but no, just like, go back to your tweet. Who did but. Ohio State? How did Ohio State be? How did they look? I mean, right. that that's all part of it, right? Um, but the idea that you know Notre Dame with a conference championship at eleven and one, which includes beating Clemson in Charlotte, which would be the most recent game, like they would that they would get left out for Ohio State who, I don't know, maybe they pounded Rutgers and Maryland. Um, Michigan. <laughs> yeah, Michigan. I don't, I don't know. It's like they're so much more talented. They really should be crush everybody in the Big Ten mostly, right? I mean, I don't know if uh, Penn State's going to have their should be really outs. good, but their biggest – like Penn State's home venue is a huge home field advantage. And while it's a home game this year, it's not going to be much of a home field advantage this year. So, yeah, I mean, Ohio State – should absolutely win that game. Yeah, I don't. I mean, maybe the lack of crowd will help James Franken think clearly in the fourth quarter. <laughs> well, he's got Kirk Shiraka calling plays for him now. I, I feel much better about the direction of Penn State's offense this year yeah. than I did before. I, I, just, go, I, I mean, go, look for from Notre Dame's perspective, the Big Ten playing is bad because it's it's one less playoff spot that's available to you. Most likely, um, I have a hard time seeing. I mean, don't you have a hard time seeing Clemson and Notre Dame getting in and the Big Ten being excluded? In theory, and I know this is a sport of, of chaos, it's a 14 playoff field with four major conferences playing. Your problem should be solved. No one should be left out. The number five team probably won't have a great argument, assuming the Pac-12 doesn't pull a miracle here and, and qualify. Uh, yes, I mean, in theory, yes. With three major conferences, there's a much better chance of – Notre Dame and Clemson getting in than there is uh, with four conferences playing, uh, especially since Notre Dame is now judged under the conference umbrella and not as a separate entity. Uh, so, yeah, I don't – in theory, the four major conference champions will be in the playoff. It's never that simple, but that's how it should be looked at until crazy happens. Yeah, yeah, I think that's – and I, I guess maybe that is – while the Big Ten playing is bad for Notre Dame because it's one less conference uh, or one less playoff slot available, most likely, the fact that you're in the ACC maybe mitigates that a little bit where it's just like there's a very, a very clear path to make it when you're conference, um, yes. which is not the clear path Notre Dame usually has. Um, I, yeah, It's like I, I can't sit here and say that I would have a problem with Notre Dame, a one-loss Notre Dame being left out over um, a one-loss Big Ten champ. But at the same time, I'm not. I can't sit here and say that the reverse should happen either. Like, I, I you just have to sort of judge that on its own merits when once when you get to that point. I was on Zoom calls all day yesterday with, with different uh, ads and, and chancellors and whatnot from the Big Ten, and the one question I kept coming back to was, 
you guys, Chancellor Robert Jones at, at Illinois had said something to the effect of, we postponed this season. We didn't cancel it. We didn't say leave us alone. You know, we, we were working hard the whole time to get this get this thing back on its feet. And I, I didn't get a chance to ask him in particular this one, but eight days after they made that decision to postpone, four weeks ago yesterday from the day where they announced they're coming back, Kevin Warren put out an open letter to the Big Ten community saying this vote will not be revisited. Right. Like, what? So it's a postponement, but it's not a postponement. And now we're coming back. But we've got, what, a month, October 23rd? More than a month now until the games start. It, it's just such a mess. Like, I just. It's absurd. Mitch Sherman, our Nebraska writer, had a very good column just about the damage this, that this did to the league. Um, if you're interested in the Big Ten or Nebraska, I suggest you read it. It was not a hot take. There's been a lot of those uh, lately in particular. Uh, it was a very good look at just just how the brand has been damaged over these last six weeks and how that will be very, very hard for them to, to, to overcome. Uh, we're happy it's back, but it's 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 just a mess. Yeah, I mean, how about the fact Notre Dame, pretty good chance they could be 6-0 and before the a, a full weekend of Big Ten football is played. What if, I mean, let's say Notre Dame doesn't make the ACC title game. Let's say they're in a three-way tie with one loss and they're the odd man out. Mm-hmm. Um, December 19th, the Big Ten's play and it's plus one, which is a ninth place game. Or excuse me, a, excuse me, a, a place versus place game in addition to the Big Ten champion, which, championship, which is a whole other thing to rant about that we don't have time for here. But say the number two team in the Big Ten East gets a quality win over the number two team in the Big Ten West. and another Is that even possible, is, by the way? Like, are there two quality teams in the Big Ten West? Usually it's it's Wisconsin, everybody else. Occasionally <laughs> Iowa will, will, will luck its way in there. Uh, possible yes, probable no. But you're also shortchanging our friend Bob Yaka, who's now calling the plays on defense and Purdue. So oh, yeah. he, he will get the last laugh here. But, I mean, what what if that extra data point? It, it, in the same way you said Notre Dame will be 6-0 and before any of these teams play, what if Notre Dame's not playing on the last weekend of the season, which is the eye test, right? Uh, yeah. It's, it's, uh, we all have a short memory here. Uh, what if the second-place team in the Big Ten East or West makes a state? And if we're in a situation where maybe the Big 12's left out because they cannibalize each other, and it's one at-large bid between Notre Dame, who didn't play that weekend, versus a team that did play that weekend and has the same record, I don't know. We, we, we could talk ourselves in circles with this, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just really looking forward to that seventh place for seventh place Big Ten East, Big Ten West game on December 19th. Where the you're probably going to be covering it, Matt. Don't laugh. Uh, which one, Champagne or Evanston? Yeah, yeah it's, will you be in Champagne, Evanston, or I mean, will you have to go to Piscataway? Where are these games being played? I will not get on a plane to go to Piscataway during COVID. Yeah, or not <laughs> so, during COVID. Some, you would not get on a plane for Piscataway. Some things are worth dying for. Yeah. <laughs> football is not. That's just not. Uh, all right, well, let's get out here on this. This weekend, what do you expect? Give me your final score. Spread is 25.5, over-under is 49. Given the uncertainty with South Florida, I'm going with the under. I went with the over last week. Didn't do me well. I didn't put any actual money on it, but I got egg on my face here. I think Notre Dame wins this comfortably uh, in the realm of 35-10. to 10. Okay. 
Which actually is South Florida covering by half a point, which is not I went a little – like last week I was not confident Notre Dame was going to cover. I think I might have gone over a little bit on it, but it was sort of one of those like, yeah, my prediction feels like it's right on the line. I do expect Notre Dame to cover this week. I I think the offense will be better, um, and I don't think South Florida is all that good. So I'm going to go to 41-10. I think that you know Ian Book has carved up some pretty – subpar opponents in his career i think this is just another one um where he smokes them and has a good stat line and i i have a very difficult time seeing south florida scoring more than one touchdown um as because look there are a lot better teams that only score one touchdown against clark lee's defense than south florida so i i think south florida getting the 10 points would be that might be a good. i don't know if notre dame goes to their jumbo goal line package (laughs) man it's uh as considering Tommy Reese played in the original South Florida game, I don't I don't think he's bringing that back. I, I don't think that we're going to see Isaiah Foskey, uh, Drew White, and Jeremiah Wusu-Koromoa trying to throw blocks at the goal line this year. Put Kyle Hamilton in there. Get the Heisman campaign uh, started early. Yeah, I guess that's one thing of having like a overwhelming number of tight ends is like you don't need to do that other stuff anymore. Um, you know. Let's just let's go with uh, Brock Wright, Michael Mayer, Tommy Tremble, and you can throw George Takis out there for good measure. Um, I'd, I, I I would love to see the look on Brian Kelly's face if they had a practice period where Reese tried to install that just as a joke uh, to see if Kelly was paying attention because that I would think, be, uh, be. I think he he would make there. Reese go in there free and book. Yeah, <laughs> you have to run this play yourself. So. Regardless, I, you know, we both expect a comfortable Notre Dame win. The forecast is good. No concerns yes. there. Sunny, cool, um, beautiful mid-September weather. So, yeah, I, I, Notre Dame cruising to 2-0, and probably cruising to 3-0 and a week from now when they go to Wake Forest. Be a little bit more of a challenge uh, before they get into the bye week. And then October rolls around, and I think then we're going to learn a ton about Notre Dame pretty much every week of that month, save Georgia Tech. There's there's going to be a, a pretty big revelation about how good the Irish are. Don't sure change to the Yellow Jackets. The Ramblin' Rock with a big comeback last week at Florida State. It's got some, uh, certainly has some trap game elements to it. Let, let me play this. I took more away from Florida State that game than I did Georgia Tech, which frankly makes me more comfortable with Notre Dame schedule playing Florida State. Um, I know that's one of the big first big ones that circled. I, I would have loosely over that if I'm an Irish fan. I just wouldn't. Yeah, no, I feel that way too. So you've been listening to The Shamrock as we uh, sort of recount the best of Notre Dame, South Florida from 2011. uh, Bigger slot fest, 2020 Big Ten or 2011 Notre Dame, South Florida. (laughs) Hmm. I have to let let some time pass before I figure that one about the Big Ten. But uh, we'll be back on Saturday night, Sunday morning for our post-game episode of the shamrock so until then uh, you can read all our stuff on the athletic and thanks for listening for another episode of the shamrock he's matt fortuna i'm pete sampson thanks for being with us